Well, welcome to our 12th session of Unlock Revelation. Tonight, we're going to explore the manner of Jesus' second coming. And we call it a thief in the night. As a boy, I used to have a whole lot of toy soldiers. And I used to like playing with the toy soldiers. Of course, I'd end up bombing most of them. But one of my favorite toy soldiers, and I wish I, I still had that. Somehow it got broken. But it was a statue made of plaster. And it was a statue of General Douglas MacArthur. Douglas MacArthur was my favorite general. And when the United States forces in the Pacific Ocean were under severe attack, General MacArthur had to leave the Philippines and go to Melbourne, Australia. Behind, he left a number of men. He also left the Filipino people who were depending on him for protection against the Japanese. And MacArthur, when he left, he made a very bold promise to those soldiers. He said, I shall return. That was a great promise, and those soldiers held on to that promise. They clung to it. It took two years. Matter of fact, on October 20th, 1944, General MacArthur made good on his promise. And he stepped off of the ship that he was on, and along with other uh, dignitaries, he waded ashore on the island of Leite. I've been to Leite. I've actually walked where MacArthur walked in. There's a, a big statue of MacArthur with these others uh, with him. And it's interesting that that statue made of bronze is in a pool of water. They have a barrier around it, like a big swimming pool, about this high, and it's filled with water, and it shows MacArthur and the others with their feet wet. Why? MacArthur made good on his promise. By the way, my statue, even my uh, little toy soldier, even had his sunglasses on it. Yeah. So it was very realistic, and I really loved that. I, unfortunately, one time when I was bombing something, I blew up poor Douglas MacArthur. But anyway, <laughs> Jesus made a similar promise, and he says that he will make good on it. He said when he left this earth, I shall return. And if you look at John 14, 1 through 3, we'll read the text. It says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I wouldn't have lied to you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That is a great, wonderful promise. This actually is the promise that is called the blessed hope in the New Testament. The blessed hope when Jesus comes back again in the clouds. Why is he coming back? To raise the dead. 
to take them to meet his father, to have their questions answered, and to be sure that the character of God, as well as the charges that the devil is making against human beings, are all answered. When Jesus comes again, it's going to be the glorious hope, the blessed hope. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Titus 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice the glorious appearing and the blessed hope are associated. This is the whole purpose of the New Testament. This is the whole purpose of the New Testament church, is to help people to get ready for that glorious appearing of Jesus as he comes in the clouds and as he restores all things new. Can you imagine how the world will be different then? When Jesus comes, no longer do we have to worry about tornadoes ripping up our house. No longer do we have to fear children who are starving to death or abused. No longer do we have to worry about kids shooting up their school or drugs. We don't have to worry anymore about crimes and violence. These things will be things of the past. Also, stop and think. Doctors will be unemployed. Preachers will be unemployed. And so will the undertakers. There's going to be an awful lot of unemployment problem in those days before us. And what will it be like when all things are made new again and we're reunited with our loved ones? Oh, my friends, that's a, that's a good kind of a problem we'd like to have. When there's no more divorces, kids don't cry at night because of their parents squabbling. We don't have to worry anymore about our loved ones being laid to rest. What about the mother who has to see her little child laid to the grave. Oh, when Jesus comes back again, that's going to be a time of restoration. That's when mothers are going to receive their children back again. Can't you picture an angel going down and picking up a baby and putting it in the mother's arm? Maybe the mother didn't have a chance to raise that child on this earth, but In the eternity before us, they'll have that chance to have that intimate relationship. Notice what it says in Revelation 21, 3 and 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things are passed away. Things will be restored and made new like they were originally in the Garden of Eden. It's a better land that we have to look forward to. The songwriter called it a land that is fairer than day. And that's what we have as a promise and a hope before us. Many people have said, yes, I know, but, you know, 
Jesus, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. Well, that's true, we don't. We don't know the day or the hour. We can tell that the, when the signs are getting near, but unfortunately there are people today who think that they can predict when all these things are happening. Now, we can only within the prophecies of the Scripture, but there are some who think they can go beyond that. A book came out a few, some years ago. It was called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Guess what? 1988 came and went. And then there was a provocative book entitled 1994. And there the, the author predicted that the judgment of the world would take place in the year 2011. Well, I believe the judgment process is going on, but there's an awful lot of wicked people in the world today that have not been received their just reward. Others have made simple predictions, but yet those predictions regarding the coming of Jesus, they are stepping outside of biblical authority when they try to assign when it's going to happen. Jesus tells us that there are certain signs we're to look forward to. But there are those who are misinterpreting some of those. Jesus said that certain things would come to pass and we would know that it was near, even at the door. Oftentimes you'll hear people talk about the rapture. But did you ever stop to think that the rapture is a concept that is actually going contrary to Scripture, as it is presently taught. Because it says when Jesus comes back, he will snatch away people secretly. And if that's the case, that he came and took these people away, then how come the rest of the people on earth don't notice this? At least, they didn't see Jesus come. The scripture says when Jesus comes, we will visibly see him, and that's when the righteous will go with him. So there's something missing in that concept. Not only that, but there are those who say that he will come and take away a certain group of people, and then seven years will pass, and then he'll come again. So instead of the second coming, it, they have the second and third coming. They simply say, well, no, the rapture is the first part of the second coming, and then the revelation of him is seven years later. And they count that as one coming. My friends, that's two comings wrapped up into one, you see, if that's the case. But the scripture says it all happens at one time. Jesus is revealed, and Jesus takes the righteous with him all at the same time. Not divided, but one event. As we look further, we find that in Jesus' time, this concept of misunderstanding and misinterpreting the scriptures created a lot of problems. When Jesus came to the earth the first time as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, we find that the majority of the people were not prepared to meet him. They had the scriptures, they read the scriptures, but they didn't 
interpret them correctly. Did you ever stop to think that back in the time of Jesus among the Jewish people, there was something called the two Messiah theory. The two Messiahs came up as a result. They had difficulty harmonizing how the Messiah of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the suffering servant who would die for his people, how could they harmonize him with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? And so they came up with the idea that there were two messiahs. One was the suffering messiah who would die, and the other was the King and Lord. And because of the fact they got them interchanged, they missed the coming of Jesus. What were they looking forward to? They were looking forward to the Messiah coming back to drive out the Romans and to deliver them as the conquering king. But what did they get? They got the suffering servant instead. Nowadays, there are many people who are looking for Jesus to come back again and to go around healing people and talking very sweetly to people and providing for their needs. My friends, he's been here. He's done that. When he comes back the second time, he comes back as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So what happens? We are making the same mistake that they made back in the time of Jesus. They were looking forward to the king and they got the suffering servant. Nowadays, people are looking for the suffering servant and he's coming back as king of kings to bring judgment. Not to convert the world, but to bring judgment. And so it's important that we understand the concept of the coming of Jesus and the manner in which he comes. Now, in the Old Testament, the first coming of Jesus is mentioned in the scriptures more than 300 times. And yet, they missed it when he came. Why? Because he did not come in harmony with their concepts. What does the scripture tell us? It tells us that a similar pattern will repeat itself at end times. In Matthew 24... Oh, by the way, in reference to what I mentioned before, uh, just a minute ago, in Micah 5.2, it told that Jesus would be born, where he would be born. It tells us in the scriptures that he would be born of a virgin. It tells us some of the signs that they could look forward to in expecting the Messiah, and they still missed him. They even made fun of him because of the manner of his birth. Even though... It was predicted in scriptures. So many of these things that they missed out on, we are missing out on the signs of the second coming of Jesus. And one of these in particular I'm thinking of is in Matthew 24, verse 37, where it says, But as the days of Noah were, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. I don't know how many people were on the earth when Noah was around. But I'm sure that there were 
at least millions, if not billions, of people on the face of the earth. Of all the people who were on the earth at that time, how many got in the boat? Eight. You know, it's interesting that the Bible talks about the end times. It talks about a remnant of people. Well, in Noah's day, eight people was a very small remnant out of all the people who were on the face of the earth. I wonder how big the remnant is going to be when Jesus comes back. Now, what is a remnant? A remnant is the leftover of an original bolt of cloth, right? I've never made a dress, but I understand that when you're making a dress and you get a bolt of cloth, uh, after you're done, what you have left is the original material that the dress is made out of. The character is the same. The early Christian church, what they taught, what they believed, what they stood for, the characters they developed, we can expect the people at the end of time to have a similar character development like they did and believe and teach the same thing they did using the same scriptures they did because they are a remnant. But notice, it was a small remnant that got aboard the boat. I wonder how many are going to come into Christ. The majority of the people will not. Just like in the days of Noah, the majority of the people were not saved because they did not believe, and because they did not believe, they did not bring their lives into harmony with what God wanted. We just read a text that talked against the ungodliness of the wicked. And so we find that there are four copies of the Bible in the average American home today. The average home has four copies. I have a whole bookshelf full of them, different translations and so forth I like to refer to. But the average home, four copies. I wonder how many of those copies are read or how many are for dusting off the pages or maybe on the coffee table to accumulate dust. Are we actually utilizing them? Are we reading them? There's no reason why we should be unprepared or we should be caught by surprise when Jesus comes. The Bible tells us a lot about this event called the Blessed Hope. In Acts chapter 1, verse 19, we find that the Bible uh, tells us, well, as a matter of fact, I'll quote it for you. If I, No, I guess I don't have it on my slide. Notice what it says. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up. In other words, he was gathered up into the clouds, and the clouds received him out of their sights. Can you imagine? This is after his, his resurrection. This is his ascension when he goes back to heaven. He's talking to them. They're looking at him eyeball to eyeball, and all of a sudden, he's, his feet are start lifting off the ground. And they're looking up. I imagine that their eyes began to get big. I imagine their, their mouths open as they're looking up in surprise. And notice what 
the angels said. It said, in, uh, again, in the same text, it says, And while they looked steadfastly toward the heavens, as he went up, behold, two men, these were angels, two men stood by them with, in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you have seen him go up. Notice that, in like manner. It means in the same way. And notice also it says this same Jesus. It's Jesus himself. There used to be a pastor in Michigan by the name of Dean Burns. And Dean Burns was as Irish as Patty's pig. Okay? And I remember Dean Burns telling me about his Irish mother over in Ireland. Whenever the queen or the king was coming to make a visit to their city, they would never say the king is coming or the queen is coming. They would say himself is coming. Himself is coming. And everybody knew who you meant when you said himself. Well, Jesus himself will come, you see. Not someone else imitating him. Not some person claiming to be Christ. But himself will come. And notice in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. How did he go into heaven? He went up in the clouds. He, he literally went up out of their sight. Ascended to heaven. Yes, when Jesus comes back again, he's going to come in the clouds of heaven with all the angels. Now, I don't think these are necessarily the puffy clouds that we see around us. They're in our atmosphere. But he'll be coming with a cloud of angels. Oh, I'm sure when he gets down here, he'll be coming through. Because don't forget the scriptures say, that the clouds will roll back like a scroll and he will come through. He will be coming first to far off and then as he gets closer and closer, the brightness increases. Can you imagine what that would be like to see himself, the one who walked and talked with the disciples long ago, coming to take us home? This is why it says in Revelation 1.7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and it's going to be in secret. What's it say? Every eye will see him. That means these little round things in your head. Okay? Some say, well, that's the, that you will see him in the fogginess of your imagination, the fogginess of your mind, like a little kid, you know, when in school, they'll, you're teaching them the same thing, the same principle over and over again, and they don't get it. And then I remember one time I was trying to get a kid to grasp a concept, and um, finally, I don't know how I phrased or whatever, he says, oh, is that what you're trying to say? Well, why didn't you say that in the first place? I said it 15 times, but they didn't get it. There are some folks who say that's how he's coming. 
and the fogginess of your mind, he breaks through. And they say, oh, now I see it. Well, my friends, that's not what it means in the scripture. In the scripture, it doesn't mean the fogginess of your mind. It means he's coming literally in the clouds. You'll see him with these things in your head, just as the disciples did when he went up. His ascension is the reverse of his descension, you see. He descends the way he ascended. And as we look, we see not only uh, is this going to be a spectacular thing, but it's also going to be a visible thing. It's not going to be a secret coming. It's going to be very public. Now look at Matthew 24, 30. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with what? Power and great glory. Talk about power. I mean, before him, the earth trembles. The sky opens up. And the dead in Christ come forth. Glory is brightness. And he comes with brightness. And people will see it. Even those in the grave will see it. I remember when I was first teaching in Maine, we were teaching in Woodstock, Maine, little country schoolhouse. My wife and I were the only teachers, eight grade school. I had the upper grades, she had the lower grades. And our cottage, which belonged to the school, was right across the street. Now, the only way that they could heat the school was I would have to go down in the basement of the the cottage and build a fire in the stove. And then that would heat the the water to go over to the school. Uh, Yeah, there were a few times when I forgot to do it. And it was kind of chilly. But anyway, I remember one time I went down there. There were no windows in that basement. It had a main Basement. Here you call it Michigan Foundation. They call it a Maine Foundation. And as I, I looked in there, I couldn't see anything. It was so dark. But it just so happens that behind our, our cottage, there was a mountain, Mount Maliakit. And this particular evening, there was a, a thunderstorm moved in. And I was down in the basement trying to, with my flashlight, find where the, the uh, door was for the, the furnace. And all of a sudden, boom! There was a, a flash of light. Lightning hit the mountain behind me. And down in that basement, I don't care if it was all sealed up, I could see that lightning. I could actually see the shape of the lightning bolt on the wall in front of me. How it got in, I don't know. Every little crevice uh, and crack in the foundation, but I could see it. And you can imagine that those who are asleep in their graves, when Jesus comes, it will be so bright, it'll be like lightning when it comes. Now, there are some individuals there's a fellow by the name of Sun Young Moon who believes that he is the second coming of Christ. You've heard of the Moonies? Okay. He believes he's the second coming of Christ. That Christ didn't 
get it all finished. So he had to come and complete it. And the justification he gives, he is from Korea. And the justification he gives to prove that he's the Messiah, he says, well, you see, I come from the East, and over here in America, the people of the West recognize me as the Messiah. See the bent he puts on that text? But that isn't what it's saying. It's saying that when Christ comes back again, it's not going to be a secret. Everybody will see him. It will be a very visible coming. In the Bible, in 1 Thessalonians 4, it tells us in verse 16 what it will be like. And as I mentioned before, this is the noisiest text in the Bible. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. And you can just imagine with a shout, it's not going to be silent. With the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, And what happens? The dead in Christ rise first. I was pastoring a church within a thousand miles of here. And I had an elder on the platform behind me who made it a habit of falling asleep during my sermon. I know the devil made me do it. you know, But anyway, I couldn't help it. He had done that several times. And so I started to talk about the coming of Jesus. And as I did, I kept lowering my voice. And people, people had to pay attention because, you know, you lower your voice. They have, to, they have to tune in to what you're saying. And then when I started talking about the Lord coming and he's about to resurrect the, the dead, and I said, and he shouts, wake up! Yeah, he jumped up and looked around. I'm sure he was ready to pronounce the benediction. But, uh, you know, you can just imagine Jesus when he comes. This is going to wake the dead. It's going to bring the people who trusted in him when they fell asleep back to life again. So, what have we learned about the coming of Christ? Three things. Number one, it's a literal coming, it's a visible coming, and it's an audible coming. These things are important that we know. And the very fact that we talked about visible, we need to remember that Jesus does not touch the earth when he comes. Because a lot of people are looking for Jesus to come down and heal people. That isn't what the scripture tells us. He's been here. He's done that. Be sure that they don't get the two comings of Christ mixed up. Notice in Psalm 50, verse 3. For God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous all around. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be buildings crumbling and so forth. It's going to be quite an event when he comes. The second coming of Christ is not only literal, visible, and audible, it's also glorious. It's going to be very bright. That's why the sow bugs have to seek a place to get out of the brightness. 
And they even start crying for the rocks and the, the uh, mountains to fall upon them. But don't forget, how much is that going to protect them? If those who are in their graves could see him coming, well, it makes them think they can get away from it by going down into the caves of the earth. It's like going into my main basement. Look at Matthew 24, 24 through 26. For false Christ, the false prophets, will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive. If possible, even the elect. See, I have told you. Now notice, if possible, the very elect. Why is it not possible? Because there are those who are studying the Word of God. Those who are studying the Word of God, He will give them the ability to distinguish between truth and error. We're going to be talking about um, a little bit about health later on. And this is the reason why God gave a health message in the Old Testament, even in New Testament times. He has given a health message. Why? Because in the last days, God's people, the, the, the line between truth and error will be so close. You're going to have to have all of your faculties in the best condition to be sure that you don't get deceived. Not only that too, but he wants us to be strong and able to withstand some of the things that take place. But notice he says, I have told you this. Why have I told you? I've told you beforehand. That's called prophecy. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert. Do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. Or he has come secretly and raptured people away. Don't pay any attention to it. When he comes, you will see it. The good and the wicked will both see it. One will run, the other will stay. Notice the scripture goes on. The Bible, in talking about Jesus, uses a little parable there about a thief in the night. Now, doesn't that prove that Jesus is going to come secretly and snatch people away? Well, let's look at it and see what it says. Look at Matthew 24, 42 through 44. It says, watch, that means be alert, on the guard. Watch, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But, that's not the important thing, that you know the day or hour. It's that you be ready. Right? If you know a policeman is around the corner and you're speeding, chances are you let up on the gas. If you're smart, you say. Because you know he's there. But you know, policemen have a habit of hiding their presence. And you go on merrily along as though life was going on as usual. And that's when they catch you at the time you knew not. Do not know what hour your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have what? What would you do? Would you lock things up? Put things away? It says, A watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
Notice here, the emphasis is not on the thief. The emphasis is on getting ready, being ready, staying ready all the time. This is where the emphasis is. Notice in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, it says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So, he says, you understand that the coming of the Lord is coming as a thief in the night. But notice what Peter says in Second Peter 3.10. It says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it shall be burned up. So what is the emphasis of the thief in the night? The emphasis is that we are to be ready every day because we never know when the Lord's going to come. And we don't want to be caught off guard. Notice what it says in Matthew 24, verses 36 to 41. But of that day and the hour no man knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. When Jesus was on earth, we have reason to believe that Jesus did not know when he was coming back again. Now, maybe since he's gone back to heaven, he may know now, but he has not chosen to reveal it to us, you see. But it says that only the Father knows, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood... What were they doing? They're going about their normal everyday life, right? They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Does does that mean it's wrong to eat things and drink things or get married? No, it doesn't. It means they were going about their everyday life. Now, you've got to realize that those people were going to excesses, you see, and they were eating things they shouldn't be eating. They were drinking things they shouldn't be drinking. And giving in marriage and marrying and giving in marriage, it sounds like Hollywood, you know? Uh, Every couple of years you get a new wife. This type of thing. Sometimes they don't even wait a couple of years. Until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. They will be going about their everyday activities and life. Then, what about this text in Matthew 24, 36, and 41? It's connected. Then, two men will be in the field. Now, of course, here, one's being taken, one's left. See, this shows the secret rapture, they claim. Well, let's look at it carefully. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding in the mill. And one will be taken and one will be left. Well, what does that mean? It means one was ready and the other wasn't. That's what it means. It doesn't say anywhere in there that they were left for seven years and then they were converted or anything of that nature. You're either ready when the Lord comes or you're not. It's not a second chance. These people were either ready to go into Noah's Ark or they didn't get in at all. 
The time of decision for them had passed. And there are many people who will wait until the last minute and then bang on the door trying to get in. And the decision will have been made. We are either prepared for the coming of the Lord or we are not. I remember when I was uh, in college. My wife was teaching in Maine and I was finishing up my last year because she she took a year off to go teach. And uh, so I had a pass. You know, if you had a train pass, it would work on the bus. So I would go over to the bus station in one town and I would take the uh, the bus up to, no, I'd take the train up to Boston. Then when I got to Boston, I would take a bus up to Portland, Maine. And I remember this one particular day, a sailor who was a sailor on board the USS Constitution came and sat beside me, old Ironsides, and naturally, I love history, so we quickly got into a conversation and he started telling me some of the things that go on after hours on that ship. And uh, he was telling about all the parties and the ladies that they had come in and so forth. And I kind of turned the conversation to talk about spiritual things. And I said, you know, I believe the Lord is coming soon. And we need to get our lives in order and be ready for it. Because... There's no second chance. He said, oh, he says, I don't know about that. He says, I prefer, when a person says I prefer, that makes me nervous. I prefer to believe that I can sow my wild oats and do what I like here. And then, after I'm dead, I will repent and then make it into the kingdom. And I said, but there's no such thing in the Bible as purgatory. He says, well, I prefer to think that there is. You can prefer to think anything you want. I prefer to think that I'm the, the king of England. But I think I'm the only one that prefers that. You see, <laughs> since they have a queen, it's very unlikely, you know. But anyway, the point is, it's not what we prefer. It's what does the scripture say. As how, where do people get the concept of this secret rapture? Through... Prophetic gymnastics, quite frankly. We talked about the 70-week prophecy. Remember that a few sessions back? And we calculated out to be 490 years. It was from the time of the rebuilding, the decree to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And 69 of those weeks was to prepare and get ready for the coming of the Messiah, the suffering servant. Messiah, not the, not the kingly Messiah. And they were to prepare for the coming of the suffering servant Messiah. At the end of that 69 weeks, he was baptized in 27 AD. Now, 69 from 70 leaves you what? One, right? One week was left. A week has how many days in it? Seven. A day in prophetic time is a year. So that's seven years. All right, these are all behind us now. This last week, I mean, this last week or 
or seven years. It was in the midst of this week, three and a half years, that the Messiah would die not for himself, but for others. And then after that, there would be three and a half years before the gospel goes to the Gentiles in 34 AD. Remember? Okay, let me show you the gymnastics that some people go through. They will readily tell you that this 69 weeks is literal. But that last week, they cut off, this is historical, but they cut off that last week and they take it all the way down to the end times. And they say that this is talking about the Antichrist. Christ will come here and then the Antichrist will reveal himself and then the second coming or the third coming in that case, Jesus will reveal himself. And this is the time that they shove down to the end of time. This is where the secret rapture comes in. And then seven years later, he comes back and reveals himself. This is called the gap theory. The gap theory. Why? Because they take all of this first part, 69 weeks, as literal. They cut that off and toss that last week down to the end of time, leaving a gap of 1900 and almost 2000 years in between. My friends, to be consistent, if this is literal, shouldn't that be literal too? If this is historical, shouldn't that be historical? How can we say this all happened, but that won't happen again for a long, long time in the future? It's inconsistent. This is where the secret rapture theory comes in. But what does the scripture tell us? The scripture tells us that God promised that he will be with his people. He will give them the strength that they need. And his grace is sufficient for us. Why do they do this? Well, let me go back to that slide in a minute. The thing is, according to the rapture theory, God takes his people out of the world because during this time, there's tribulation going on in the world. And the people of God are spared from that tribulation. Only those who are on the earth go through it. Well, there's a problem with that. You see... Let me go back to the time of King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember, when we talked about Daniel 2, had this big image he saw in vision. It was different metals. And, well, he didn't like Daniel's interpretation of it. And so he decided he was going to make a copy of that statue. He was going to make it all of gold to show his defiance of God's interpretation. And he set it up on the plains of Dora, nice and high, like the Statue of Liberty. This thing was really high. And what happened? He, and the plains of Dora is quite flat. He called in all of his officials and everything. He said, now when the music plays, you all bow down to the image. Now, the Babylonian power and king were the beast of the time. And now he's making an image And he says, you all bow down to that image. 
that the beast power has made. Well, they started to play the horns and everything, and everybody bows down, but standing straight and tall were who? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, notice Daniel's not there. Big mystery. Where's Daniel? I think the king was smart enough to get him out of town because he knew Daniel wouldn't bow down to this thing. But anyway, he thought that they would bow too, but they would not bow. And they very politely said, Your Majesty, he said, All right, I'll give you a second chance. Okay, when they start playing the music again, maybe you didn't understand, I'll labor with you. One, two, three, they start blowing the horns and everything. But they said, wait a minute, Your Majesty. We want you to know that our God is able to save us from your fiery furnace. But if he chooses not to, that's all right too, because we're still not going to bow down to that image. They stood for the right because it is right. Not for any great reward, but because it is right. And the king really got bent out of shape on that and heated the fire up even hotter than it was before. Now, notice that the king had three men tossed in, but as he looked in, he said, how many did we throw in there? And they said, well, you sent in three, your majesty. But I see four of them, and they're walking all around in there. And he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out of there. He said, the other one looks like the Son of God. I'm sure Daniel had had some communication with him about what the God of heaven was like, that he could recognize him in that fiery furnace. But he said, there were three in there. Now there's four. He called them out. And when the three came out, there wasn't anybody in the furnace anymore. And he said they didn't even smell like smoke. Their clothes weren't burned. But the ropes they tied them with were all burned up. But their flesh wasn't burned. What does this tell us? The Bible does talk about hard times in the future. But the great tribulation period that are mentioned in Matthew 24, they're already behind us. There's tribulation in the future, yes. But does God take us out of it? Does he spare us from the hard times of the future? No. He goes with us through the tribulation. And he brings us out of it successfully. My friends, do you have hard times in your life? God could spare you. He could snatch you out of these difficult times. But instead, you know, even in the hard times, he goes with you. He strengthens your character like steel. And you come out of it as a stronger person than you went in. What about our friend Daniel? And later on, Daniel, because he stood for the truth, he ended up in the lion's den. Now, God could have spared him from the lion's den. He could have raptured him out of there. But he didn't. He left him in there. What did he do? He sent his angels to shut the lion's mouth. Well, you can say, well, the lions weren't hungry. Well, after they got Daniel out of the lion's den, they tossed in his accusers, and those lions broke their bones before they even hit the ground. They were so hungry. 
what happened? God delivered him from the lions of Satan that would destroy him. And in the last days, those things would, that would destroy us, our God is powerful enough. You see, there's not a second chancism. There's not a conversion of the wicked after Jesus comes and raptures his people. What's it say? Those decisions have to be made before Jesus comes. Revelation 22, 11. He who is unjust when Jesus comes, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. God is not going to save us in our sin. He's going to save us from our sin. He's not going to convert the world after his second coming. Those people have already made their decisions. Either they're on the Lord's side or they're not. What side are you on? You see, there's only two classes of people who are on the earth in the last days. Isaiah 25, 9 says, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. While the sow bugs are crawling into the rocks and the caves, there are those who have been looking to the coming of Jesus, and they'll look up and say, there he is. He's the promised one we've been waiting for. Praise God. He's come to deliver us. Oh, my friends. The coming of Jesus is something that is going to be the greatest event since his birth. The coming of Jesus is going to be a time when all things are made new. He's going to clean the atmosphere. He's going to clean up the graves. He's going to prepare it for an inheritance for his people. In the meantime, he takes them to that heavenly city. And one day, Jesus is going to come back. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more suffering. All of this will be behind us. Once again, he will say, it is done. Just like at the cross. He said, it is done. This time, it is done. And he will make things new once again. The Bible, in Bible times, they had burnt offerings that they would give. The entire offering would be consumed totally when it was given to God. This symbolizes a person giving Jesus his or her whole heart. Have you done that, my friends? Have you allowed him to burn the sin out of your life? Are you willing to give yourself as a living offering to God? To live your life in a way that pleases him. Our possessions won't do us any good at that time. They'll burn up. That house of yours that you spent so much time on, guess what? It's going to burn. You know that brand new Lamborghini you just got? It's going to burn. Okay? That big fancy job that you wanted that had a big income, it's going to burn. We need to get our priorities in order. What are the things that count in life? Our possessions won't do us any good. The only thing of any importance at that time will be whether or not we are in Jesus and whether or not Jesus is in us. And so tonight, I'd like to once again say to you, invite Jesus into your heart. 
Invite him to lead in your life. Oh, he's coming soon. It's going to happen. And people have been looking for him throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. He's our only hope for the future. May he be your hope also. How many of you want to be ready when Jesus comes? By the grace of God, you will be. You will be if you trust him. Heavenly Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to be with us. Help us to be totally committed to you and to your service. We look forward to the coming of our Lord when he makes all things new. We look forward to that big family reunion that we're going to have when we see our loved ones who have fallen asleep trusting in Jesus come forth from those graves, our grandparents, our parents, our children, our spouses, our loved ones, being reunited. We won't look back at this old earth as we rise to meet Jesus in the sky. Our eyes will be fixed on him, for he is our hope and our salvation. May each and every one of us be ready and be present at that day. May we look up and say, Lo, this is our God. He will save us. Bless us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.